0: Our scripturing today is the second half of chapter 22 in Matthew. Starting in verse 23 of Matthew 22. The same day Sadducees came to him, who say there, there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, "'Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother.' Now there were seven brothers among us, the first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven." And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Amen. Amen.
1: Let's open up with a word of prayer. Holy Father, as we come before your word today, may you humble us before your text. Lord, get rid of our excuses. Get rid of our our arguments, and Lord, let us sit under your word today. Lord, may you do the same in my life. If there are areas where I need to repent and come to you, I pray that you would convict me of that. pray that as we come to your word, you would be glorified. In your name, Amen. What does it mean to be a healthy church? What does it take to be a healthy church? I mean, certainly we may think of a, a praying church is going to be a healthy church. A church clearly cannot be healthy if it is not talking to the Lord, if it's not in communication with the Lord. We may think of a healthy church, often we think of numbers as if numbers determine the health of a church. Numbers can be a gauge. A healthy church will be a growing church, but numbers can't always indicate health. Some of the largest churches in the world have strayed far from a biblical view of salvation. But when we talk about a church being healthy, then what does that mean? I mean, a person can be healthy and not be the tallest and most muscular and most famous person in the world. With the right combination of diet, exercise, and stress management, someone can be healthy and live in complete obscurity. Isn't that possible? So, is it possible for First Baptist Church of Gordon to be a healthy church? I've said it many times since arriving as pastor here that Every church, not every church can be a megachurch, but every church can be a healthy church. Mark Dever in his masterful book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, has suggested, well, nine biblical elements that are essential to a church if we would want to claim to be healthy. These nine marks include expositional preaching, or preaching that begins with the text of Scripture for its content, not the mind of the pastor. Another mark is biblical theology, or beliefs that are grounded in clear biblical teaching. Dever also argues that a church must be centered on the gospel, having a biblical understanding that salvation is not merely good deeds, but is a clear conversion from sin to Christ. And that a church must have a clear understanding and practice of evangelism. And a deep concern for discipleship and spiritual growth. One of the other elements of uh, marks of a healthy church is biblical leadership. One day, this church may have a pastor that's like that. But, this morning, I entered our, 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 uh, our music director. Went to shake his hand and bash his elbow on his guitar. A godly pastor would never do that, guys. (laughs) Amen. <laughs> One day, you guys will have a godly pastor. Clearly, i got a ways to go. The final couple of marks in Devor's book, interestingly, relate to what he would call meaningful membership, or church membership that actually matters and means something. For some of us, this concept may seem new. After all, most of us myself included grew up in churches where becoming a member was a way to simply belong to something kind of like a club and the only process was filling out a card during an invitation in other words what i intend to suggest and what dever suggests in his book is that meaningful church membership is impossible if we do not, or meaningful church membership is impossible if we do not know what church membership means. Or put another way, it is impossible to be a healthy church or a healthy church member if we do not have a healthy, robust, meaningful understanding of church membership. Just for the sake of clarification, I want to add that when I say meaningful membership, what I intend to mean is an understanding of church membership that takes membership seriously. Now, at first glance, you and and many others across our nation may be opposed to this kind of an understanding of church membership. You may argue something along the lines of, well, we've never done it that way before. Or maybe it would be unloving not to allow someone to join our church. Or maybe you would say, this is is all just way too new. To those who are concerned that we've never practiced church membership in a meaningful way before, means that we do not need to now. Let me suggest that in everything we do, the scripture constantly calls us to conform to the image of Christ. Just as in our lives, we as a church must submit to Scripture as best as we know how. If we are convinced that certain membership practices or mindsets are the best way to be obedient to Scripture, then what we have done in the past does not matter. 150 years of church practice do not overthrow Scripture. That's the mistake of the Roman Catholic Church. That tradition has equal value with Scripture. To those who think that healthy membership practices may be unloving, I urge you to stick around over the next couple weeks and see if the Holy Spirit will convince you otherwise. The Holy Spirit in God's Word will convince you otherwise. Now finally, to the last argument. This is all too new. Let me alleviate your concerns... Just on that, on that particular front. Outside of Scripture, right? We're going we to come back to you and see if this is actually in Scripture. That's our main driving question today. But outside of Scripture, in A.D. 150. Is that far enough back? Did, that go, did I go back far enough? You remember that? Wayne was there. Merely 60 years after the death of the Apostle John a little church manual existed called The Teaching. For at least one Christian community, this document described how they practiced baptism, which, even in the New Testament, was part of joining the community of faith, with a process similar to many churches' new membership classes. Chapters 1 through 6 describe basic Christian theology, and chapter 7 describes that After a person has been instructed in these things, then they can receive baptism. This is actually a pretty calm process for these early centuries as some churches required a three-year teaching process before they were allowed to join the church, before they were allowed to receive baptism. And even then, before they received baptism, they could not receive Lord's Supper with the rest of the church. So this... This work is fairly calm for that time period. But let's move a little bit closer to our time, right? That was was thousands of years ago. Have Baptists ever practiced meaningful membership? After all, this is a Baptist church. We want to stand with our tradition, right? Have Baptists ever done this? Well, I'm glad you asked. I could speak about several Baptists, but for the sake of time, let's talk about one. Benjamin Griffith, a pastor in Philadelphia, wrote in 1743. Just for sake of reference, that's 33 years before the Declaration of Independence. A long time ago. He wrote in 1743 about a biblical way to admit someone into membership. He says that in order for a church to fulfill its duties as commanded by Christ and to maintain peace and purity as commanded by Christ, that a church should uh, get the pastors and teachers and elders and the entire congregation together to engage in a threefold questioning of the person who wished to join the church. First, the church should examine the person as to whether or not they are a Christian. It's a vital, vitally important step. Second, the church should examine their understanding of key biblical doctrines like the Trinity. He said it, not me. The attributes of God, sin, salvation, baptism, among many other doctrines that he lists. And third, the church should examine whether the person can give evidence of living according to the gospel that they proclaim. 1743, if Christ has commanded the church to be pure, which scripture clearly teaches, local churches must, local churches must do all that they can to ensure and maintain that purity, we are after all Christ's bride, now having said all this, none of it matters if church membership is not biblical, right, if it's not biblical it doesn't matter, It doesn't matter what was taught in A.D. 150 or 1743 or in 1879 or even 2018 in Gordon, Texas. What matters is whether or not church membership and healthy practice is biblical. Over the next several weeks, we will look at Scripture and and seek not only to discover what healthy membership practices look like in Scripture, but also to discover what it looks like for you and I to be healthy church members. As today is an, is an introduction, I, I hope you will allow me the grace to give a more topical, albeit closely tied to the biblical text, sermon this morning. Let's begin with the church begins, and where the church mem- and where church membership specifically begins. So turn with me to Acts chapter two. Acts chapter two. As you're turning there, there's some things we need to consider when we approach the New Testament. Looking for practices of church membership, we first need to reorient our minds to what we are looking for, right? We're not going to find in the New Testament anything called new members classes. We're not going to find the words transfer of letter or fill out this card. Rather, what we see in the New Testament is less akin to the idea of joining a club and more the idea of receiving citizenship, Most of us think of churches and church membership as like a club to join or a voluntary organization or some place that provides services. But the New Testament uses citizenship language to describe the relationship between the church and its members. Over the next weeks, we hope to unpack this more. But for now, let me simply say this. Although you are a citizen of your country, you do not affirm yourself as a citizen of this country On your own authority. You may be a United States citizen, but you do not have the authority on your own to affirm that. Does that make sense? The government or an embassy affirms your citizenship. Just like an embassy, churches are embassies of God's kingdom in the world. The New Testament says we are strangers and pilgrims in this world and that we are ambassadors for God's kingdom in this world. You cannot simply call yourself a Christian and be unaccountable. Rather, in the New Testament, as we will see in the next weeks, uh, tasks local churches with the job of affirming your citizenship in heaven. Not saying you are a Christian, mind you. The New Testament does not say a church determines whether or not you are saved, but rather a church affirms that reality. Even more, the New Testament depicts being a part of a church as being a part of a family or a part of a body. As we'll also see in the New Testament, except for a few frontier missionary situations The Scripture does not give any examples of Christians separated from churches. It doesn't exist in the New Testament. So, let's see if Scripture gives any indication that church membership matters. Following the lead of Jonathan Lehman in his book, Church Membership, How the World Knows Who Represents Jesus, let's take a journey back in time. Let's take a time machine back to the early days of the church. We must ask ourselves the question, did the early church practice church membership? And if they did, did they take church membership seriously? Let's look at our passage in Acts chapter 2. This is right after Peter's Peter's, uh, great sermon. 3,000 people had just gotten saved. And verse 42 describes this scene. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship And breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. As we've headed back in time, our time machine lands us in Palestine. We find ourselves in approximately A.D. 30, right? long time ago. The Roman province of Judea had been conquered by General Pompey 90 years earlier in 63 BC and is now governed by the biblically infamous Pontius Pilate and the Jewish puppet king Herod Antipas. We cast our eyes on the brick and mud houses, we see a few mansions here and there, and above it all, we see the Temple Mount. Our purpose is simple. To catch a a glimpse of the earliest churches and their members, do local churches exist? Do they practice what we call church membership? We see a sight as we stand there described in Acts chapter 2. We find ourselves surrounded by Jews from every nation under heaven, Parthians, Parthians, Mesopotamians, Cappadocians, Asians, Egyptians, Libyans, Romans, Cretans, Arabs, and the list goes on. They are gathered for the annual Jewish feast of Pentecost, and the bustling colors and smells make us think of uh, what we may think of a flea market. First thing that strikes us, however, is not a sight, but rather a sound a sound like the blowing of a violent wind as described in Acts 2.2. There in front of us is a group of men preaching in the native languages of all of these people. The crowd is amazed, as you and I find ourselves amazed. A man named Peter challenged the people, preaching from the ancient texts written by King David, who called the recently crucified Jesus, "'My Lord.'" Then he speaks with a slap to the faces of the people in the crowds. And he says in verse 36 of Acts chapter 2, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah. As we see this, we're afraid, almost certainly, the crowds will stampede Peter. Surely they will have him arrested and even beaten to death. But that's not what happens. Instead, the crowd is cut to the heart and they want to know what they need to do to be saved. Peter responds Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter isn't trying to hide that Jesus is a king, even putting that very claim into David and God's mouth. What's more, he tells the people to identify themselves with Jesus through baptism. It seems he wants to establish a marked-off people, a publicly identifiable movement. Remarkably, the people respond in droves, and 3,000 people were added to their number that day, as we see in verse 41. It seems our time machine put us right in the right place. This is the start of it all. As we ask around, we find that just before we arrived, this group of Jesus' followers was a group numbering about 120 people. But then on this amazing day, 3,000 more names were added. Maybe their names were James, Andrew, Lydia, Alpheus, Procorus, Jimmy, Scooter, Alice, right? Bubba. They're all listed. They're all named. Or these, maybe these were their names. The church is counting heads and keeping records, right? They were able to number that there were 3,000 people. They had names. They, had, uh, they could count heads. They knew who these people were. Over the next few days, we, we set up shop, right? We get ourselves a little office, maybe a tent, to continue gathering information and examine our findings. We watch as this group settles into a new lifestyle, As we saw in our passage this morning, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. They share fellowship, the breaking of bread. They share prayer together. They call themselves believers. And they share everything in common, including their possessions and goods as people have need. This group is is on an entirely different wavelength than the rest of the entire city. It's as if they were from somewhere else. The whole flock of them meets together in the temple courts and then breaks into smaller groups in their homes. The group also keeps growing. as It says in the end of our passage this morning, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Over the next weeks and months, more and more people begin to claim to believe this message. And soon, we find, as Acts 4.4 describes, that the roles of just men reaches about 5,000 people. We ask ourselves if they're merely trying to pad their roles. Only interested in numbers. right? That's all they're looking for. But soon, the answer is obvious as the leaders become aware of some serious moral lapses in Acts chapter 5. And when these lapses take place, they quickly respond to correct them, resulting in the quick judgment of God and the church on the deceptive Ananias and Sapphira. And somehow we find that this whole large gathering is still meeting together in Solomon's colonnade. And by now they've started calling themselves the church. In Acts 5, 11 through 12. Soon then an issue arises and they call a members meeting to talk about how they can better love their widows. There's no doubt about it. These people spend time together and they care for one another. So remarkable is their life together that as we ask around we find that they are highly regarded by the people. We see that in Acts 5, 13 but not everyone likes them. Not everyone highly regards them. Peter and the, and the apostles, we've, we've watched this. as Peter and the apostles have regularly been asked to uh, answer to the authorities. Peter clearly tells them every time we must obey God rather than man. This group of people knows the buck stops with Jesus and no one else. They never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Life continues to get pretty hot for this group as persecution sets in. One leader named Stephen is stoned to death because of his belief in Jesus. It looks as if the chief priests get a hold of a list of names. And they send one of their most zealous henchmen a Pharisee called Saul to go house to house to drag church members off to prison. People begin to come and tell us as we are continuing to compile this research that that the people who are scattered because of the persecution are actually preaching the good news wherever they went. The persecution is scattering Christians away from Jerusalem and into other cities and lands. We begin begin to hear about disciples popping up in various cities all over the place. Everyone begins to to realize that Jesus did not simply come as king of the Jews, but as king for as the king for all tribes and tongues and nations. it's around this time that we begin to hear that Saul has begun to preaching in the synagogues that Jesus is the son of God and the Messiah. Many don't believe it until Saul himself shows up and preaches as Acts chapter 9 verses 27 and 28 describes boldly in the name of the Lord. Things are beginning to look up and the church of Jerusalem is now scattered throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria and they all seem to be enjoying a time of peace now. Now, as we come back together, we want to go back and look at the data we've collected so far. We begin to conclude the possibility that God purposely brought in- international citizens to Jerusalem for Pentecost. And then God purposely allowed persecution to come so that converts would spread across international borders. And just as we're examining this data, one of our friends from the Jerusalem church runs into our meeting and stops to catch his breath with his hands on his knees. He has some news for us. He informs us that a great number of people have believed and turned to the Lord across the Syrian border in the city of Antioch. A year later we find that a great number of people were brought to the Lord in Antioch. And for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. Clearly, people are not just coming to Christ in Judea. These Syrian believers, they're the real deal too. At one time, while we're camped out in Jerusalem, a famine comes across the land, and we are starving to death But the disciples in Syria send provisions to us. And because of their generosity, instead of having nothing to eat, we find ourselves enjoying spit-roasted Syrian lamb, accompanied by fig and lentil salad. I might pass on the salad. Grilled flatbread and goat cheese wraps. And stuffed grape leaves. Christian love is definitely delicious. Again and again, these Christians prove that they care for one another and that their care extends across national borders into churches beyond their own. As we're there in the decades past, we watch this church planting momentum build. Saul, now called Paul, takes one journey where he plants churches in Cyprus and Asia Minor, including cities such as Derby, Lystra, Iconium, and Pisidian Antioch. On a second journey, he plants churches farther west, in the cities of Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth, and Ephesus, just to name a few. He then takes a third journey to strengthen many of these same churches. Verbal reports and even copies of letters written by the apostles to these churches find their way back to us letters to churches in Galatia, Thessalonica, Corinth, and elsewhere. In one of his letters, Paul, who's at this time under house arrest, describes himself, "I am an ambassador in chains." In Ephesians chapter 6 verse 20. He uses his entanglements with worldly authorities to the advantage of King Jesus. The governing authorities are all over the map as they begin to respond to these churches. Herod Antipas arrests and kills church members. The Roman proconsul of Cyprus of Cyprus believes their message and converts, as does one synagogue ruler. Governor Felix, as we see in Scripture, sees an opportunity for bribe money. Governor Festus calls Christians insane. King Agrippa is provoked, and another Roman proconsul, Gallio, basically says, "Whatever." And swats Christians away like they're a pesky fly. It's as if the church and its members are straddled somewhere on the edge of society. A part of it, but not a part of it. Neither fish nor fowl. A copy of a letter from Peter actually shows up one day and starts saying exactly this. He says that Christians are exiles. 1 Peter 1 1. Now, as we stop, we've seen this over the decades. We've observed what's going on in the church. We go over our findings, we take notes, and we discuss, and we try to piece things together. And what we find is 10 indisputable themes throughout our research. One, we find that the church's very existence unifies around the message of a Savior and Lord. Just as we heard in our first day in Jerusalem, we hear from all of these churches and again and again in our notes the words, for the forgiveness of sins and Jesus' Lord appear. The apostles proclaim it. They call it the way of salvation and the good news, and the Holy Spirit gives people the tongue to say it. These Christians respect and defer to worldly authority to a point, but their ultimate allegiance is to Jesus. They call themselves ambassadors in chains, and they risk everything, even to the point of death. Number two, we find that Christians are ordinarily united to individual but interconnected churches. At first, every believer was attached and added to the church in Jerusalem, Then we see a transition phase when isolated disciples are scattered, as when Philip explained the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch. But all of this is frontier mission stuff, and therefore the exception, not the rule. Other than this time of transition, there are no examples of Christians separated from churches. Quickly, churches were planted at Antioch, Iconium, Corinth, and so on. These churches continue to communicate to identify with and to serve one another in times of need even across national borders. Third thing we discover is that Christians collectively identify themselves as churches. We can hear this in the way they talk about themselves. Saul began to destroy the church in Acts 8:3. News of this reached the church Acts 11.22. Barnabas and Saul met with the church. Acts 12.1. The church was earnestly praying. Acts 12.5. They gathered the church together. Acts 14.27. The church sent them away. Acts 15.3. They were welcomed by the church. Acts 15.4. The Christians use the word church to identify themselves in their life together. The individuals belong to something larger and corporate. Our fourth observation is that Christians possess a special power and corporate identity when they're assembled. Paul writes of when the Corinthian church is assembled and the power of our Lord Jesus is present in 1 Corinthians 5.4. Later in the letter, he refers to when they come together as a church, verse 11, uh, chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians 11.18, as if they are somehow more a church when They are together than when they are apart. This gathered assembly, it seems, has the power to do things, to make decisions and pronouncements on behalf of Jesus. Number five, we discover that the first step of the Christian life is baptism. Always. Peter said, repent and be baptized in Acts chapter 2. And those who accepted the message were baptized. When Philip preached... They bap they believed first and then were baptized. After Paul was saved and his sight was restored, he was then baptized. The people in Corinth who believed when Paul preached were baptized. In Romans chapter 6, verse 3, Paul just assumes that those who had believed, those who were in the church that had believed in Rome, were baptized. This public identity marker is an absolute given for Christians. The sixth thing we find is that Christians are commanded to separate themselves from and not formally associate with the world. Now, Paul does not forbid relationships with non-Christians. We can see that in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10. But he does tell Christians not to do anything that might risk formally sharing their Christian identity with non-believers. He tells them not to be yoked together with unbelievers, since light and darkness have no fellowship. Just as God wanted a clear line between Israel and the rest of the nations, so God required a clear, bright line between the church and the world. 2 Corinthians 6, 17 says, Come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. There is nothing blurry about that boundary. The seventh thing we notice is the life and authority of the local church shape and orient the lives of its members. This was especially clear in our first weeks in Jerusalem. The Christian life began... With the authoritative framework, individuals were baptized, added to the church, and then gathered to hear the apostles' teaching. And from there, the believers orient their lives around other members of the church. Their meals, their praying, their schedules, their financial and property decisions, their provision for widows, all centered around the church and its members. Maybe this pattern was only unique in the first couple of months, we ask ourselves. But as we look on, the the Antioch church's generosity with the Jerusalem church suggests otherwise, as do other episodes that we haven't talked about yet, like Lydia's generosity with the traveling missionaries. Instead, what we witnessed in those first months gave us the detailed picture, which didn't need to be repeated again and again in the records over the following years. Also, the letters we receive from other apostles also give us glimpses to the same kind of communal life. The eighth thing we recognize, and as our research team continues to look through these things, the eighth thing we recognize is that Christian leaders are made responsible for specific sheep. Christian leaders are not given responsible for every Christian everywhere, but for specific sheep. Peter tells elders, be shepherd, shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. In 1 Peter 5, 2. Paul says the same to the elders in Ephesus. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers in Acts twenty twenty eight, The elders know who they are responsible for. They know those people. Number nine, similarly to this, We see that we find that Christians are responsible to submit to specific leaders. The author of Hebrew writes, Obey your leaders and submit to them in Hebrews 13, 17. Clearly, the believers must know who their leaders are. Paul writes, The elder who directs the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor. In 1 Timothy 5, 17. If the Christians are to honor their elders, they need to know who they are supposed to honor, right? And the tenth thing we find, probably maybe one of the hardest ones for us to wrap our minds around, is that Christians exclude false professors from the fellowship. In one letter... Paul tells the church in Corinth to expel the wicked person from among you in 1 Corinthians 5.13. Obviously, you cannot expel someone from a church unless they belong to a church in the first place. Elsewhere, Paul says to warn a divisive person twice and then have nothing to do with them in Titus 3.10. And John talks about false teachers who went out from us because they did not really belong to us in 1 John 2:19 Adding all this up one thing is obvious to our research team To become a Christian is to belong to a church The New Testament picture paints a picture that no one gets saved and then wanders around by him or herself thinking about whether or not to join a church. People repent and then are baptized into the fellowship of a church. Looking to Christ as Lord means being united to God's people. It's automatic. Like being adopted means you'll quickly find yourself at a dinner table with brothers and sisters. You don't get adopted and then wonder around whether or not, deciding whether or not you're going to join a family. It doesn't work like that. The idea of church membership runs through everything we read and hear. We may not see people filling out cards or find a definition on a handout put in the bulletin. Rather, everyone, insiders and outsiders, know exactly who is meant when, Christian refer, when Christians refer to the church. To be a church member is to be one of the individuals who constitute a church. They know who they are. In fact, you cannot talk about a local church without talking about its members. It's like trying to talk about a team or a family or a nation without talking about its members. Just like the members of the team Are the team and the members of a family are the family, so the members of the church are the church. As we travel back to 2018, we come away with a few answers. Local churches did indeed exist back in the early days of the church, and those churches consisted of clearly defined people who covenanted together in that location. Each of these believers committed themselves to these local microcosms of God's kingdom. Small embassies where just like in God's kingdom, Jesus is Lord. So let me ask you, do you profess Jesus to be Lord? Are you committing yourself to a local church? There is no such thing in the New Testament As Lone Ranger Christians, we need each other for our own accountability, yes, but we also need one another so that we have a clearly defined group to fulfill the one another commands in Scripture. So, a couple of questions as we close. First of all, are you a Christian? Is Jesus Lord of your life? If Jesus is not Lord of your life, none of this sermon matters to you. None of this study, none of our research matters. The first step is, do you know that you are a Christian? Is Jesus Lord of your life? Have you trusted his sacrifice, his death and resurrection for your sin? Have you trusted him for your salvation? If you have not... I would urge you to come to me, find me, and I would love to share with you how you can know for sure that Jesus is Lord of your life. Secondly, do you need to covenant yourself together with the church? Are you trying to be a lone ranger Christian right now, wandering around without Jesus, or without without a community of faith? that's the case, find a church and join it. I know of one. Third, for those of you who are members of our church, I hope this was helpful. Maybe there's some things you need to think about. Do you think of church membership as the New Testament describes it? Or have you allowed some Tradition, rather, to inform your understanding of church membership. Maybe there's an area of your life that you need to submit to the Lord. Maybe there's some repentance that needs to take place. Maybe it's just merely a reorienting of your mind as you think about your membership here at, at First Baptist Church in Gordon. We come to a, our time of invitation. Let me go ahead and pray for you. Respond as the Lord would have you respond. Respond. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, even though church membership does not look like maybe exactly what we practice, we can see it like a scarlet thread all through the New Testament. The idea of church membership is woven into the fabric of the New Testament. I pray, Lord, that we as a church would have our minds transformed according to your word. I don't care how we've always done it. I don't care what we've done for the last 150 years. Lord, all we need to be caring about is are we doing things biblically? Your word is authority over our lives and it calls us to submit to it. Pray, Lord, you would help us to to understand your word and to work through these things, Lord, and to become a church that is more in your image. In your name.